Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I'm delighted to uh, uh, make up for our lack, our, our little vacation, perhaps, that Dale and I have had over the last month or so. Uh, I was traveling all around the country for a month, uh, doing various and sundry things, climaxing in a fun uh, uh, week at Davenant House uh, uh, toward the end of last month. Uh, but I'm finally home. We're back to podcasting for this new coming season, and we're going to kick that off with a conversation we wanted to have with you all today, sort of recapitulating, I guess, Dale, something we've been talking about privately over the last couple of weeks, involving the role of, um, I guess you could say, strategy in human existence. Like what, you know, we're, we're, we're living in times when people are talking a lot about strategizing their lives in so many particular ways. You know, there's so many life improvement programs, you know, sort of strategizing health, uh, strategizing your spiritual life. You know, what, what is strategy relative to human civilization? How should we be strategizing relative to all the forces about and hierarchy of goods and choosing the instrumental political means to achieve, you know, some good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What would it look like to be too? And I think this is maybe the heart of what we have been discussing. What does it look like, I guess, to be too little strategic, like to be reckless and to be unwise and to be unprepared and that sort of thing, both personally and civilizationally? And what does it look like to be hubristically strategic, where your eyeball mm. is on the ordering of things and the anticipation of things in such a way that you actually don't ever really just live? Yeah. <laughs> That you that that in such a way that suffocates that restedness that must inevitably be part of the Christian life in the present, and so how does the wise person discern between I suppose the warp and woof of those two poles? What's the positive energy, as it were? And that's a weird way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's the sorry? Uh, but what's the positive energy, as it were, that sort of shoves us toward precision, toward the good? in a precise way and, and that avoids those, maybe those two ditches. So I don't know, I'll, I'll toss it back to you and maybe you say what you think we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks and and then we'll, we'll move from there. Yeah, well, I think the first thing to say is these sorts of conversations are so deeply meaningful for me. So when Joe and I talk, when we're not recording, a lot of our recording comes out of just what we talk about because we're friends. Um, and Joe and I each have something unique, little idiosyncratic things about ourselves that uh, we learn from one another and we grow and we continue to pursue the true, the good and the beautiful together. That's true brotherhood. Um, so I guess that's the first thing to say, because, you know, Joe and I are different on a number of, re of meaningful registers. Uh, but in our conversations, we're always looking for uh, synthesis. How do we synthesize and how do we sort of carve off that which is needs to be carved off? Or how do we sort of, uh, you know, support that which needs to be supported? And when we talk about strategy, you know, we began our conversation saying, well, just what is what is strategy? So I tend to fall on the side of maybe overly strategizing my life, right? Um, and I think that comes with a certain understanding of what time is. Uh, but I think that everyone strategizes. So everyone has a strategy, whether you do that consciously or not is a different thing. Um, 
But when you wake up in the morning, there is a set of possibilities that lie before you in the next 12 hours, however long you're awake, uh, that pre-contain, um, you know, the potential to be actualized, I guess you could say it like that. There are some things that we can't necessarily choose to strategize about. Like if I have a dentist appointment, the level of strategy is, okay, just make sure you're in the car by X time and at the location at this time, right? That's, that's, the, that's about the limit of my strategy. And if I have things on my calendar where it's like, I know I've got to be at certain places or take certain phone calls at certain parts of the day, I just need to make sure I'm available. And so let me organize the day so that I'm available for those things. And then there's strategies that can be, um, I think you said overly hubristic, uh, which literally looks at your day as um, if it's not pursuing some sort of uh, defined goal, then you're wasting the day, so to speak, right? So, uh, you know, if you're mindlessly scrolling through Facebook at 1030 in the morning in your bed, um, you know, are you doing something that is not good because your time could be spent somewhere else that is better? And the relationship to those two things can be the difference between righteousness and evil. The person on their bed scrolling through their Facebook at 1030 in the morning could be doing something good. Uh, they could be doing something bad. It, it just depends on, I think, um, the way that you, and you and I talked about this, the sort of hierarchy of priority. And that comes from your application of value onto certain things that you prefer. So what do I value the most? That's, that's where I will start to make my hierarchy of priorities. And then once I have my hierarchy of priorities, then I will begin to strategize in order to accomplish my priorities. Uh, of course, I say all that, but that mindset could actually be too crippling. Um, because I'm certainly not saying that if you're not strategizing every moment of your day, then you're doing something bad. On the contrary, if you strategize every part of your day, you could be doing something bad. So where's that sweet spot where we say, here's what strategy is, here's how it functions, here's how it can help us to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful, and here's how it can be dangerous to our souls. And so that's sort of what you and I have been trying to find oh. out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something live on the program that could get me in a little bit of trouble, but, uh, you know, so much of this, and I think we'll, 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 we'll get back to some of this and, and talk about, I think, how we discern that, because really, I think the way we would discern that is really to discern where is it coming from? Is it coming from the need to prove a thing? Uh, is it coming from a, uh, a certain temperament? Or is it coming from a certain uh, felt obligation that's false, you know, that sort of thing. And this is where, you know, you and I have expressed our, our, our appreciation on the program before for somebody like Jordan Peterson. But it is true that when you listen to Peterson and, you know, sort of the clean your room and the, the, the focus on self-ordering, um, um, I think that there's a certain personality type that can relate to a message like that. And it becomes uh, what what their mentality becomes such that life is sort of this output of uh, fine tuning an algorithm, and yeah. so they begin to relate to their life, and especially for OCD persons, I think 
Uh, maybe some people just know life isn't that way, but people who struggle with scrupulosity or mental patterns of OCD, which are increasingly common in our civilization for all sorts of reasons, yeah. uh, they can tend to relate to a message like that in such a way that life just becomes the output of this algorithm. And then they always are in this kind of meta space. You're always in a kind of meta space relative to the actual living of life, which presumably is supposed to include moments that are just not that self-conscious. Uh, uh, that's as, as odd as it as odd as it sounds to say. I'm just learning to uh, to figure this out. I'm just learning to sort of have that as an orienting point for understanding what a healthy mindset is, which is to say. There is no healthy life that does not involve a little bit of comfort in one's own skin, a little bit of not over self-consciousness about what I'm doing right now with all of this incredible burden about juicing exactly. There's a sort of value system that can be absorbed perhaps from from language and motifs and subtle media messages for really decades and decades from the economic sphere in a sort of American mm. entrepreneurial spirit of productivity and this sort of thing, where we relate to time in a way that's so driven not by the actual textures of what it is to be a human in relation to time, but mm. rather to be oriented to a market and its interest in its relationship to time. And those, the, the, the end of the human and the end of the market can be different in that orientation to time, which is why for the freest country in the world, the rest of Europe looks at America and they commonly, commonly, commonly say, how do you guys not rest? Yeah. The way that you relate to time where you don't actually unplug, you don't actually pull away from the bustle. And now what complicates this, of course, is that there are virtues that come from that. There, there are elements of the American entrepreneurial, hardworking, I'm going to be productive spirit that, that would be, on the other hand, self-loathing to simply reject. In other words, we just are these people. We are hardworking, hard accomplishing people. We're the guys who put the man on the moon. We do want to juice what we can out of this existence and about our civilization. And that's good. Uh, that's good, but it's good in as much as it is it, it, it as it can participate in just the fullness that is man himself, yeah. the fullness that is the fullness of humanity itself. Anyway, I wanted to say all of that actually to get to this, and I want to throw it back to you because one of the things that has one of the things that I've really enjoyed about our friendship is that we're very different types of men on a lot of registers. We share certain things in our in our manhood, you might say, but uh. In the uh, in, in previous generations, I suppose we would have cl been classified in different sort of, you know, uh, what do you clicks at the high school in the 80s or something. Sure, like. sure, sure. Uh, and so that's very interesting. And one of the things that's interesting about intimacy and friendship is that you grow both into being yourself, but all, actually sort of by becoming more like your friend, becoming more like your friend. Uh, uh, through the path of being yourself. And that's what friendship is, is that context where you move toward another human through the path of just being yourself. You are in your own skin. You're comfortable. Uh, you can say, uh, you know, screw you. Uh, if you right. just agree, and it's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but you also 
uh, in a good, in a healthy, and especially in a godly friendship, what happens is you move toward each other in such a way that you also become more like your friend. Uh, uh, and that means participating in one another's virtues. And it, what it reminds me of in our civilization, when we ask a question like this, what does it mean to be strategic and that sort of thing? What it reminds me of is that there are just different types of men. One thing that you have to factor into anything like this is, is uh, you need to avoid the temptation of thinking that there's some model man besides Jesus, some model mm. man that we're all trying to be like. The problem with saying it's like Jesus is that people project into Jesus whatever they want. And the reason for that is that Jesus is that complicated. Jesus actually does pre-contain all the virtues of all of the types of men. And to then to have him be the model man is actually for every type of man to, through moving toward Christ, becoming more also like one another. Those who mm -hmm. tend to be not uh, 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 have enough fortitude and courage become more courageous. Those who lack graciousness and those who lack uh, uh, a sensitivity and an openness to their own emotions and to the emotions of others become like those men who are more like that because they're all becoming more like Christ who has all of those virtues in unity. Yeah, I think it's important to talk about an ideal type and we do locate that in Jesus. But there are forms, ideal forms of everything. You, I mean, if you, if you buy into the whole uh, Platonist tradition, sort of Thomistic understanding of forms, um, we can say that there is an ideal out there, right? There's an ideal man, there's an ideal woman, there's an ideal city, uh, there's an ideal uh, uh, dog. Go down the list of things that are, things that have been, there's, there's an ideal of those things. And I think that, you know, who is in- the, oh, Sorry, who is the ideal woman? Um, my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> the eschatological church. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. We could talk about that. Yeah. Uh, and I, the the thing that I'm trying to say is, we largely come to a closer approximation of the ideal through negation. So it's very hard to be prescriptive in what it means to become the ideal, because that can look a bazillion different ways, right? Just like you were mentioning. But what's easier to get us to a rough understanding of an ideal is to say what it's not. Um, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a part in um, the Odyssey where Odysseus is talking about what it's like to sit around a dinner table, and he's and he's like setting up the whole environment. He's describing the atmosphere, the cheer, the wine, the food, the company, the song, and then he says, "This is as close to perfection as it came." Right. So he's he's sort of giving us a vision of what it means to sort of be close to perfection. Uh, but if you reversed that and you said you said uh, and you described a dinner where it was the most horrible dinner atmosphere and setting that you could possibly describe to someone, their mind is immediately going to move towards what an ideal would be in contrast to that. So it's through the negation of the ideal that we find a more um, understandable or a graspable understanding of the ideal. And I think the more that you try to explain an ideal in its particulars, you'll get lost in explaining anything actually. 
Um, so I do think that there's a reason we leave vague notions of ideal vague. Uh, we can say uh, we can say more about the ideal as we sort of stumble upon it and discover it, but it is through discovery. And that's because we have the faculties given to us by the creator, which we could call God the, the highest ideal, um, that is in tune with the things that he's put in reality to point us towards the I ideal. Wonder, I wonder if there's a way in which, I mean, it seems to me like it really parallels the way that we talk about God, which is through affirmation and negation. And we're really... Oh, Everybody does this. I mean, like, you don't even need to, like, get into scholasticism or Thomism or something fancy right. or complicated. What everybody does is says God is love, but that doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. It does mean this. It does mean that. And you sort of carve up love in this sense, but not in this sense. And then you can under all, all scholasticism does is does that metaphysically love relative to act and not to potency, you know, fullness versus negation, that sort of thing. Um it's it, so when we're relating to others, and, and what we're trying to do is get this back to the question of strategy. And I'm gonna I want to link it right now to that to that question. Oh, sorry. Well, let me yeah. Well, let me say something about that because that's where I, that's where I was ultimately going. Right. It's oh, sorry. Like, Go ahead. Because if you have an ideal life, if we're if, if we're trying to pursue that the the good life, right, the happy right. life, that assumes we know what that is. Most of the time, we do not know what that is. We only know what we do not want it to be. We know that this is not happy. This is not a happy life. This is not a happy life. This is not so on and so forth down the list. And when we start saying what it is not, we come to a clearer picture of what it actually is then. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that I that happy life is something that I don't think can be um, passively pursued. So at the end of the day, there must be a strategy. So if you do the negation and you figure out what you do not want, then there has to be a level of planning towards avoiding those things that you do not want. So like me, um, I do not want my son to grow up to hate me, right? So how do you go about doing that? And part of this is recognizing that God is ultimately in control and I am not the master of the universe and, you know, things will be the way that providence works out for them to be. But I can make moves now, intentional moves to make sure that I'm eliminating any potential significant hurdles for my son to resent me when he's older. Even if I do that in peace, you know, uh, uh, not obsessively, but even if I do that in a broad way, the movement towards that, the pursuit of a happy life, meaning in part that my son doesn't hate me, means that I avoid certain behavior or certain things. So my, the big point is, and then I'll be quiet and throw it back to you, is that um, we're pursuing ideals largely through what we think they are not. And then we are developing, whether we think we are or not, a strategy around accomplishing the ideals. And those ideals are largely based on a value system, uh, which gives rise to a priority system, which then gives rise to some sort of strategy for accomplishing the priority. That's that's sort of what I was getting at. Yeah, I think there's a way in which all of that's true, but a couple of like, where would I, where would, I, where does it, where do like little wobbles happen in me in all of yeah. that? I'd say, I'd say a couple of them. One is, 
So this is not uh, anything you explicitly said. So really, I'm just qualifying everything to make it because it makes it more no, brother, you can shoot me down. This is Oh, no, 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 actually, because I think actually, there's formally everything you've said is correct. It's just what is it? What does that translate to into the human imagination? Yeah. from what you've said that's formally correct that's where the qualification says formally correct but not in this way right <laughs> so one of those is like yes everybody has an implicit uh hierarchy of values they strategize ends relative to means in order to achieve those values that's in, in some sense just what it means to be a rational agent actually to be a human being is right. to be the kind of creature that operates in one's life and environment in some sort of functioning strategic anticipatory way uh through a, a actually a natural faith hope love structure that is the mm. which is you know that sort of thing so like yeah in some sense what you're saying is just what human beings do um i would say those values are not necessarily always conscious that is to say especially i think non-discursive maybe less talky processors uh, maybe yes. who live in more intuitive spaces it would be hard for them to say explicitly exactly how all those things are functioning for them and so there are types of persons who don't live in a space where it's easily talked about and named explicitly and nevertheless what you said is still true for them that is to say there still is a hierarchy of values and there's an at least an implicit strategizing where the where the 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 lizard brain is basically saying oh i'm going to avoid that and pursue that because that's how i'm going to get my needs met you know that sort of thing right. um, where i think the language of personality types and types of persons comes in is that you framed it in terms of negation but i would also want to say just like in language about god it's it's there's also something implicitly positive in other words at some point, you see a man being a courageous personality type, a, a more thumatic character, and you see contexts and environments where that's good and attractive and yes. helpful and meaningful for civilization. And there's something just in the human that goes, ah, that's a good thing right there. And then you see the Mr. Rogers gentle guy in these other contexts and you say, yes. ah, that's a good thing right there. And what we're doing, in a sense, I think one of the, the things that Satan wants to do is to get everybody to define the good in terms of the relative good that they participate in. We each participate relatively in the good, but not the good fully. And what relationships are for and what the gifts are for is for men to come together and train each other toward being men. Those men that everybody thinks are effeminate actually have something precisely as men. Mm. offer those men who are men precisely in the more kind of traditional performances courageous and such they have that precisely as men yeah offer those men and that needs to be believed and received and that is yes. actually when the church makes up for each other's weaknesses and we create communal environments where it's we actually participate in one another's virtues and grow together. And where that relates to something like strategy, I think, is that you just see certain types of men. There are certain types of men who their gifts are never going to grow in the soil of an overly stared at life. 
that's mm. just not the way they perform their own being. That's not the way they're going to fit in their own britches, as it were. And that's, yep. you know, the archetype would, you know, be sort of the dude in the big Lebowski or something like yes. that. You know? um, <laughs> but there are types of men uh, for whom a, a sort of hyper relative to that guy degree of self-ordering and, and juicing out productivity in the day uh, uh that degree of self-ordering is actually their natural that is them being themselves that is actually them participating in their own humanity in the way that they want to because yep. that's how they move the person that we both know and this is where i said at the beginning of the episode that we get into a little bit of trouble <laughs> the person that we both know that's like this is our good friend brad littlejohn and yes. brad littlejohn there's no sanctified holy perfect beatified glorified version of brad littlejohn that will not be running around in the new heavens and earth <laughs> and juicing every day of celestial time to the grave because that is just what he is yeah and it's beautiful yeah. because it's beautiful because it does so much for people and it's not a thing that he expects everyone else to be he's just that way so i stayed at his house uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, I walked upstairs, my, my family is staying in Brad Littlejohn's basement and we ascend up and there's Brad Littlejohn sitting on the couch reading a book. And it was like, oh, there's no way he's reading that for work. That must be for pleasure. And I said, oh, Brad, it's so good to see you reading for pleasure. And Brad's response was, yes, I've decided that I need to read more for pleasure to be a more well-rounded person. <laughs> that is what I'm doing right now. And so, <laughs> so he had second ordered strategized yeah. spontaneous reading for pleasure. And like that is just who this man is all the way to the core of his active existence. And it's a beautiful, he's a beautiful person because yeah. of it. And we participate in his virtues and you're in my relationship in his life is to help him participate in a couple of other virtues. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. He helps yeah. us participate in his. Yes. But what, so strategy, when we talk about strategy, especially in a kind of American system where a certain type of man tends to be the model, this is where it becomes really important to say, okay, there are some versions of being that model that are good things and have been good for civilization and are good and like to be praised. Those are in some cases, performances to be praised. That can also be a totally horrifying thing to right. two thirds of the population. It can also be an oppressive thing that drives people mad. And what we need to recognize is that the virtue of anticipation and strategy and preparation and all of those things relative to both one's circumstances, one's life, the relationship to civilization overall. Uh, uh, there are ranges of what it means to participate in those virtues relative to being certain types of persons. And what it means for men and women and everyone to be wise, men relative to women, women relative to men, men relative to one another, women relative to one another, because this all of this is in the world between women as well. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, it is to recognize that I, my default instinct is that I and we, whoever we are, only participate in the good sum. And whatever it means to be healthy is to recognize and move from that participation in the good, because all that it will ever mean to participate in the virtues of another person is that the participation in my own good flowers. What right. it means to participate really in the being 
the actuality of another person is to open oneself up into because when truth participates in gentleness and courage participates in restraint sure it's not less courage that happens it's more courage it's not less restraint it's more restraint uh, the virtues grow uh, as yeah. they participate in one another and that's yeah it's the be open to your brother yeah it's the multiplicity and the unity it's the it's it's how do we how do we take the many and then locate which unifies them right um well we're all sort of following a basic algorithm that's baked into reality because it emanates from the being of god god donates his being and so in some way we all know intuitively because we are rational creatures what what we where we should be moving towards but nevertheless in god's wisdom and in his brilliance as a artist um, creates the many to participate in that good in many different ways nevertheless it's unified um and i i want to i want to i want to just uh support what you said there with um you know the sort of epistemology of this i think it's correct that most people don't sit down and sort of like con consciously do all the things uh and i think that most of us don't actually do a lot of things very consciously even if we are hyper productive like let's say a brad littlejohn I think that humans um, what actually drives Brad Littlejohn. That'll be our next episode. Go ahead. Yeah, right. We'll get him on and we'll just turn his mic off when he gets ready to answer and <laughs> frustrate him. Uh, uh, but but I think that we we learn things. What you said was right by imitation. So why do we imitate? Right. Why do we have stories? Why do we have exemplar exemplars in history that we read about? Um, what are we trying to do when we study one's life, right? Uh, we're trying to imitate them on some register. Yeah, how did they uh, trust God? I want to trust God the way they did. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What did what? Yeah, what did their whole life look like? And you know, uh, what what is that that's worthy to be loved about that person? Um, which is really just what the classical tradition and you know, particularly with Augustine talks about in the ordering of the affections to love that which is lovely, right? We should, yeah. we should learn to love that mm -hmm. which is lovely. Uh, we do that through imitation, but we also do it through our emotions and our senses. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was getting at earlier about, mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't, we have the faculties given to us by our creator to sniff out the way that we should go towards the good, the true and the beautiful. And those include our emotions and our senses. So as a child, I don't strategize to not fall into the fire. Uh, first, I encounter flame and feel heat and my emotions and my senses communicate something about the heat. And then I make a decision to get closer or move further from the heat. Uh, and in some respect, we're like this forever. The world crashes in on our senses. We cannot control it. And actually the way that the brain processes data is unbelievably complex and I don't know anything about it, so I won't try to act like I do. Uh, I know enough about it to know that I don't know anything about it and that it's extremely complex, but nevertheless, we cannot be strategic all the time. It's impossible. There's no way that you could do it. So what I think we end up talking about when it comes to strategy is there's a spectrum that 
personality runs alongside um what's the other word that you use temperament sort of yeah. which goes into personality bavink, yeah bob by the time of bavink you're, you're you know christian ethics is already talking about temperament as a as an element of ethics well what does it mean to be productive you know as a virtue right. well that's going to be somewhat inflected through temperament right yeah and i think that the danger comes in when you say being productive looks precisely like and then you say something, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, because it strips the other of their own agency and gifts to manifest the good as God would have it through them, precisely as them, which is yeah. what I think you're getting at. So in a, I teach a class at Davenant called the philosophy of modernity. And in it, I talk about modernity as this situation in which this is sort of my running definition of modernity i suppose it's as good as any other if you don't like it sorry i do right. uh and it's the the simultaneous global renegotiation of all human custom i think uh, it's one of the best definitions i've ever heard actually i do too if i were donald trump i'd be like it's the best definition it's an amazing definition You're right. uh, 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 i think <laughs> so the simultaneous global renegotiation of all human custom uh I think that is about where we are. Uh, and I think the date, you know, when we're in that context and we're just faced with, with constant difference, constantly different value systems, different cultures, different peoples, different everything all the time. Uh, uh, it's not, it, there is a certain conservative impulse that's righteous and good and important. Protect the traditions. Don't be radical. Don't just throw things away, which we're doing and is it, doing at an insane rate. That's a good impulse. Um, but it is just a mark of maturity in for the very reasons we're talking about right now to say, to have like openness to the other, openness to that which I might not expect. It's just yeah. a mark of maturity to be open to that. And I think the thing that I just find implausible, I just find this deeply implausible is I feel like all the messages in our civilization implicitly from both the right, the left, churches, civilization, the publishing world, you're supposed to believe that the virtues that I need to grow into are almost entirely contained in one half of the civilization and not in the other. Mm. These people have nothing to give you or yeah. these people have nothing to give you. And the argument for that is, of course, very understandable. Look at all the crazy things these people are doing. That's true. Yes. <laughs> you can come up with so many endless crazy things that those people are doing. But if you do not see, if you're really believing that there's an entire half of the population of three, we're an entire quarter of a population of 325 million people. What is that? 160, 80 million people and change. That's how good I am at math, Dale. Yeah, 80 say. million people and change who really, actually, real kings and queens that God has given the active existence unto. Yeah. Nothing to offer you in precisely doing you, even. Yeah. I just don't, there's something in me, I think at such a deep level that finds that so dramatically implausible. 
I find that so implausible that the community of women have nothing to offer men and the community of men have nothing to offer women. Uh, and that one half of our civilization has nothing to offer the other. And that there are no, there's no, you know, virtue in those who generally vote Democrat that is not needed in some way, in some order. Uh, and that there's no virtue in Chinese civilization that we don't need and that they don't need from us. The example of that that I, I always think of that's fascinating is, and then I'll throw it back to you, brother, is, uh, you know, I think it's commonly, you know, when, a, when an American person goes and visits, a, you know, an Asian country or something like that, they come back so impressed with like, look at their community, like the children are so respectful of authority. Wow. Right. <laughs> you know, and the, the families are living together and they support each other and, and they see all the virtues of community and what happens when you don't, you know, you can feel the contrast to this kind of radical individualism and all of its problems. Uh, but on the other hand, it's really funny if you go hang out with a group of like Chinese or Indian graduate students going to graduate school in America, my goodness, are they enjoying themselves? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. They yes. see all the virtues of like, oh, wow, I can like say things out loud that I might not say back at home and all that sort of thing. And really all that we're saying is an epiphenomenon of this simple truth that, that there's something in the virtues of that performance that is Chinese civilization that is just attractive to human beings as human beings. And there's something about the performance of being a civilization that is America that is also that there's a lot of negations, a lot of problems, but there's also something positive that is also just attractive to human beings as human beings, because what the human soul actually desires is God himself and the fullness of the good. And what it means that there are types of men and types of women and types of persons, i.e. the genders and types of civilizations even, uh, is that each of us are only a, 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 a partial participation in the fullness of the good. And what the human should expect at the default level, actually, is that when I encounter that performance that is so foreign to me, uh, actually, in some ways, that is probably coming from the fact uh, that they possess a good that I do not participate in, even if the mode in which I'm seeing that good expressed uh, is you know something actually heinous and my heinous and those responses are also necessary and crucial those sure. are part of reality but yeah. Uh, yeah 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 i yes good word brother good word i i just want to say one or two more things but as we're winding down here um you know i think you you said something earlier about the sort of economic system that can bleed into our own uh ordering or strategizing of our of our life uh but also influence the way that we view the family unit you didn't say this but you and i have talked about this so i know you would say this um where the dad becomes a sort of ceo of the family or the head pastor becomes the ceo of the church and there's this odd relationship between authority and strategizing and you know the sort of market economy that americans are have grown up knowing and that's all we really do know and how deeply that in, in, is in, uh, yeah. affects everything that we do really and we don't see how it does it because we don't know any better we just do the thing that's part of our environment yeah. all of um, these are part of leadership yeah you know? right exactly yeah. and i think part you know joseph peeper's book on leisure i've been rereading it and sort of making careful notes and thinking carefully about it because i'm going to be 
riffing off of him when we do the regional convivium here uh, next month, is that we have been so accustomed to this sort of workaday existence wherein our rest on the weekends is merely to recharge the battery to go do the labor again in the following week when we've uh, and, and that's what we call leisure when really leisure was uh, an end pursued for its own sake. And it was the contemplation of things uh, like it's a pretty amazing thing to just sit around and consider deeply the what's around you. Who is this person with the face and the mouth and the eyeballs talking to me? And like, what are they saying? And what do I not know about that? And leisure is sort of sitting in that space, not trying to figure out all the things in a moment, but to just bask in the glory of what it means to be and sort of rejoice in the goodness of being. Um, and, and that's very difficult for us because of how we have been shaped by our American Americanism. Um, and I think that that goes into the, the, the discussion when we get into strategy and leadership and all that. Um, but I also think that it needs to be recovered and I'm not sure how to do that. Um, but I think that the resurrection has something to do with it. <laughs> uh, I think that our understanding of the Lord's Supper and the implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what he has accomplished in inaugurating a kingdom that is known for rest and delight in God, who from him comes be all being. And we can celebrate in our participation of that um that's why we that's that that is a party almost you know the wedding you said earlier perhaps the uh woman uh ideal is the eschatological church uh well it's interesting that it's always talked about in a in a in a uh, way in, in the context of a marriage and then there's a banquet there's a party it's a cosmic everlasting party and yeah. you're celebrating what the defeat of death and eternal life. So the, in form, the, of, the form of womanhood is the party girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll be the title of your in next one book. sense. In one sense, yeah, perhaps. yeah, there you go. Yes, yeah. yeah. So I guess that's, I, you know, as we're thinking about, you know, we began talking about strategy. You know, what how, what does it mean to strategize? And I we've said a bunch of things, but I guess. If you walk away with anything, I'd say, well, number one, everyone does it. Whether you think you do it or not, everyone does do it. Um, there can be an emphasis on strategy. I'm trying to, you know, well, I don't need to summarize what you say. I'll let you summarize what you say. But I guess what I'm saying is uh, don't assume that others and their uh, their ability or their way of strategizing if it doesn't look like yours is not the right one we should be tuned our receptors should be tuned to pick up all the little pings of the good the true and the beautiful everywhere and we need to be doing that for our own life and you have to be intentional and purposeful about how you pursue those things in yeah. whatever vocation you have as a dad as a husband as a church leader as whatever whatever you are um and there's it's 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 a healthy practice you know, solomon says in proverbs the wise man plans his steps but the fool uh boasts that he doesn't you know like he boasts i don't plan anything 
Um, so there is a level of planning that I think right. is wise, but we can be over assured that our particular strategizing is the preferred method and then become, like you said at the beginning, hubristic, uh, both for God, against God's sovereignty as if things really depended on you really, uh, and in your pride to think that right. you're the that you're the closest thing to the ideal type. Yeah, you know, where where I think an emphasis like the spiritual core of the virtue of being strategic, if I could, if I were to try to abstract, where where does it become a virtue? Is that piece of ourselves that doesn't just passively sit around and think I'm a victim of the world, like they're, they're, the human being to be a human, just to be. Uh, a center of consciousness shining above the abyss of nothing, moving toward the good, the true, and the beautiful from within the context of a finite life can never be reducible to victimhood. And mm. that that uh, that doesn't mean you're not a victim in any sense. We're all victims in, in, in many senses. Yep. Uh, we're also victimizers in many senses. Um, uh, uh, but what it means to to speak of strategy in one sense is just to say that your life just is a movement through freedom. You just are, whether passively or actively, making your own life through being a certain way. That is just mm. what it means to be a human, to be alive. That doesn't mean you don't come with anything, but your freedom is an inflection on top of that thing that you come as. And the fact that you are free on whatever register you want to define that, there's no Christian version that denies this version of freedom altogether. The, the fact right. that you are free on some order means that you, uh, you are not reducible to your circumstances, and therefore something of your life is a co-creation with God. You're co-writing a script with God. That's a very ancient Christian metaphysical yep. metaphor. And this is where actually uh, uh, where I think Jordan Peterson, like if, if I were to get back to where I think he can be both dangerous and helpful, I think for a certain temperament, perhaps for a kind of OCD temperament, I could imagine the kind of clean your room responsibility message being turned into a tendency to pure, sort of pure algorithm. I actually don't think that would be a fair reading of him on the whole, but I think his rhetoric could sometimes lead certain kind of personalities to think that way. On the other hand, I have just met so many young men. I just do know so many young men who really do live in a kind of malaise of meaninglessness and who could listen to kind of the Ben Shapiro's of the world just talking in shame language, just sort of like, well, there just are the competent and the incompetent. Where Jordan Peterson is actually the guy looking at the person who feels that way and says, it makes sense you feel that way. And that's, that's a, that is all his influence really is, is mm -hmm. that if you're that guy, he doesn't make you feel ashamed for being that guy. He actually sees you and says, it makes sense that you're that guy. Nevertheless, there is just nothing rewarding about being that guy. And you actually don't have to be that guy. Yes. And that's actually liberating for a lot of persons who tell themselves, I have to be this thing. And really the clean your room thing is not just, is not like, let's distinguish the men and the boys. It's actually very deeply compassionately gazed toward the person who is totally unmotivated to clean their room. And that's what's rare. The church rarely speaks to that person. The world of the manosphere rarely speaks to that person. It's very rare 
to actually see the person who's on the bed and can't get out and, and, and speak compassionately to make them feel compassion for why they are there and nevertheless be able to say, but you don't have to be that way. And yeah. in as much as that is what the vibe is and that's what the message is, that is actually a very righteous thing. And that is actually just part of, that's actually part of the Christian, really where that, where the Christian, it nevertheless leaves you hanging. That's a spiritual truth to be awakened to, but what does it mean to move within that truth? And I think that's where the Christian movement of the fulfillment of that message in a sense within the Christian, within the Christian, within the Christian sphere in a sense is to say, that first movement, that first habit, that virtue of the virtues, that foundation of all the other things, just is the simple open hands of trust and receiving faith that say, I'm not God, and I need you. Because I'm, I am, it's to say, I know what I am. And it's purely limited. And of myself, I will just, I will just jump off the cliff. I know that that's true. And it's that openness to be filled by God, who's the ultimate other, also the closest, the also closer to oneself than you are to yourself, and precisely yeah. as that other, <laughs> that, yes. that becomes that spiritual center from which then I am open to the other, uh, to, to the less capital O other, uh, and know, in fact, and have the instinct, in fact, that I, of course I need the virtues of those people. Like, look at me, I need God. Yeah. <laughs> and relative to God, like I've got like, you know, one of the 40 things I, I bet, uh, yeah. uh, you know, like yes. you know, there's more, more to be tweaked in the algorithm. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, well, thanks for being my friend, brother. And thanks for giving me your virtues. You're a pretty cool dude. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, you know, right back at you, brother. A whole like yin and yang, the whole reciprocal uh, virtue yes. sharing. You know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> Although most time, you know, I, you victimize me. But we won't talk about that today. Yeah, That'll obviously, be... obviously. Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, you deserve it. <laughs> yeah, right. So my dad told me. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> all right, everyone. Um, Joe, it was good to be back with you. Uh, we did take a little break, but we should be back on a pretty regular basis uh, moving forward. Um, as always, check out our previous episodes, YouTube, um, at the Davenant Institute YouTube's page, iTunes, all the podcast things. Uh, but Joe, I love you, brother. Love you too, man. And we'll see y'all next time. See ya.